When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians, and Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking, and saying, They are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this was what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will pour in those days, pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades 
nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Amen. We're considering together these seven queries of the covenant of communicant membership listed on the back cover of your bulletin. Now, of course, these questions aren't the inspired word of God. And therefore, they're not our preaching texts. But like any good systematic theology, the covenant of communicant membership takes the teaching of the Bible and assembles it together topically for our better understanding. And there's a logical order to it. We began two weeks ago in the first query in 2 Timothy chapter 3 by giving our assent to the divine inspiration and authority of the Bible as the word of God. Because without a compass and a road map, we're lost from the start. We have no idea where we're going theologically or how to get there, unless the Bible tells us. The second query and the 14th chapter of John's Gospel then took us directly to the triune God who reveals himself from cover to cover in this Bible. The next question, the church asks those who come seeking communicant membership, takes us beyond mere assent to certain doctrines, things that are external to ourselves. Merely assenting 
at an intellectual level to the origin and reliability of the Word of God, and then consequently giving our intellectual assent to the Trinity. These aren't a sufficient grounds to bring anyone as a living member into the body of Christ. Not by themselves. Knowing these things, and even having some emotional response to them, qualifies someone to be a devil as much as it qualifies him to be a church member. Isn't that just what the Lord's brother James tells us? You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. The demons understand these things that we've covered over the last two weeks. They give their intellectual assent, knowing them to be true, and they have an emotional response to them. But do they ever attain the crowning third element of true faith? Knowledge, yes. Emotional response, yes. But trust? There's no trust. No resting in what they know to be true concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, these things that they know to be true also spell their everlasting ruin. The church is built of people once turbulent and troubled and stirred up in the sins and guilt of this lost world, people who now by faith rest in Christ. People who by faith rest in Christ. The second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles shows us how Christ builds his church today by showing us how he built it at the first. All these turbulent people, guilty people, thousands of them, are brought by faith to rest in Christ. To help draw the picture on the large biblical theological scale, I've also included for a side-by-side -side comparison the account of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. The one is an account of men alienated from God, banding together against God in order to supplant God. It's the beginning of the secular humanist experiment. So how are we going to do this? How are we going to declare our independence from God? Well, we're going to bake some bricks. We're going to build ourselves a city and a tower. We're going to put ourselves on the map. We're going to make ourselves a name in the earth. God may have said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, but we like it right here. Our fair city, banded together as the city of men. This city will have all the latest technology, all the conveniences of life, everything we need right here. We'll build our own human paradise right here, not have to go anywhere, not have to do anything, not have to please anyone but ourselves. 
And so to get them back on track, back on the task of godly dominion throughout the world, the Lord confused their languages and scattered them. And so the secular humanist experiment suffered its first major setback. God visits in judgment, and no longer can we even understand one another. Now in Acts chapter 2, we have a new race of men, as it were. A small community living by faith under a new federal head, the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam. And on the day of Pentecost, seven weeks after the Passover, seven weeks after the Lord's death and resurrection, they were all together in one place. But being together in one place this time wasn't because they themselves decided to be. It's because they had to be. And this for two reasons. They had to be all together in one place. First of all, because as Jews, the law of God summoned them together on this occasion. Pentecost was one of those three Jewish festivals that required a holy convocation of God's people. Now, what was this house where they were staying? Well, remember that Acts is the second volume of the Gospel of Luke. Where did that volume, that first volume, leave off? It left off at the ascension of the Lord Jesus. And they returned to Jerusalem, it says, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising God. Yes, it's true, they also met together in that upper room that Luke mentions across the page in Acts 1.13, a room that's large enough to accommodate 120 persons. But they spent a lot of time in the temple, the house of God. And let me suggest to you that on the day of Pentecost, it's the temple rather than the upper room where these events of Acts chapter 2 transpire. A large upper room might have accommodated 120 persons, but would it be public enough to draw the attention of thousands of people who come together to see what's going on? Would a large upper room accommodate 3,000 new believers, let alone the others who were there to scoff and mock and satisfy no more than their idle curiosity? Was the upper room big enough? Probably not. This house where they were staying, where they were continually, was probably the temple, maybe Solomon's portico or one of the other sheltered colonnades. So that's the first reason. They're all together in one place. It's to observe Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. The second reason they're all together in one place is just because they had no power or direction to do otherwise. For 40 of those last 50 days, between the Passover and Pentecost, the risen Jesus had been with them again. Up to 500 of them at a time, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God and gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. Then he ascended bodily into heaven as they looked on. And so now, 
They wait. What else are we going to do but wait? A week they wait. A week of prayer and praise and waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. When He comes, whenever that may be, then they might at last have power. Then they might at last have direction. Then they might see some way around this obvious problem that humanly and realistically speaking, they're nothing more formidable in the world than just a few rustic Galileans. Just a little band of brothers facing civil and religious institutions that are firmly intertwined and firmly prejudiced against them and the good news they have to tell. Institutions bound and determined to circulate the unlikely story that they'd stolen the body of Jesus from its sealed and guarded tomb. Well, today we look at this matter of our conversion by the inseparable graces of repentance and faith. And I should begin by reminding you of Jesus' words to Nicodemus that night of his visit. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Regeneration. Rebirth by the unilateral quickening of the Spirit is prior to anything else happening in the Christian life. No new birth, no repentance unto life. No new birth, no exercise of saving faith. No new birth, no justification or adoption or sanctification or glorification. It all begins with the new birth. And we don't regenerate ourselves any more than a baby conceives itself or a dead man raises himself again to life. Regeneration is entirely the gift of the Holy Spirit. Immediately on the heels of his work of regenerating, though, comes our work of repentance and faith, also called our conversion. And this is the matter before us today. On the one hand, we don't bring ourselves to the point of a, a new birth. But then once we're born again, He doesn't do our repenting and believing for us. We have that solemn responsibility. When the preaching of Peter that day cut so many to the heart, when they cried out with a true sense of their own guilt, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter didn't say, Well, there's nothing you can do. He didn't say, Just let go and let God. No, by the new birth, now sovereignly granted, now sovereignly empowering, now in fact prompting the question. There are things that we can do and things we must do. We respond to the gospel. By the Spirit thou poured out upon the church, in verse 38, he calls them to action. Repent. And let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent. Repentance 
turning from our sins to the living and true God we now know through faith in the Redeemer. So the mechanically minded might be inclined to ask, well, does faith come first or is it repentance? In his little book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, John Murray rightly says, It is an unnecessary question, and the insistence that one is prior to the other, futile. There is no priority. The faith that is unto salvation is a penitent faith, and the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance. And Murray then leads us to answer to the answer of our own shorter catechism, question 87. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Now, grammatically, verbal tenses have a lot to teach us. That's true in many places, and it's true in our understanding of this third query of the covenant. The present tense of the question isn't, have you done this, or did you do that, or will you do the other? The question is, do you? Do you repent of your sin? To turn from our sin, to confess our guilt and helplessness as sinners against God, and to profess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and to dedicate ourselves to his service, to endeavor to forsake all sin and conform our lives to his teaching and example, these aren't lines in a check-the-box kind of checklist, as though once you've done it, you're done. Jonathan may have repented of his sin on Tuesday morning, but you know what? By Tuesday evening, he needed to repent again. Wednesday, same story. Thursday, too. David wrote by the Holy Spirit, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do you want to be a Christian? then get acquainted with the daily reality of suffering every day a heart that's broken for your sin. All the time. All the time. Peter tells those who by the hands of lawless men a few weeks earlier had crucified the Lord of glory, Repent! And let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. As we turn from our sins, hating them for what they are, and for what they've done to us, and for what they've done to our families, and what they routinely due to all our relationships, when we turn from them, we don't just turn toward a spiritual neutrality, if there even were such a thing. 
At our conversion, we turn from our sins to Jesus, our faithful Redeemer. From one to the other, there is never a moment the gospel allows you to become a free agent. One moment you are in the grip of abject slavery to sin. You are guilty, you are helpless. The Spirit alone regenerates. And you turn from your sin, not just sin generally, but you turn from your sins, the very ones that were mastering you, killing you. You turn from them into the arms of your faithful Redeemer. Can it be you should ever willingly serve sin again? Can it be once you've experienced the embrace of the crucified, the embrace of heaven's free and full and final acceptance, can it be that once you've tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made a partaker of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, can it be that you might ever turn back to the cold, hard existence of life at the pigsty? When at the other end of the road are a father's open arms? God helping us, we shall not turn back to the life now behind us. We shall advance instead from strength to strength. God helping us, we profess Jesus Christ, Son of God, as our Savior and Lord. God helping us, we dedicate ourselves to his service. God helping us, we shall endeavor to forsake all sin and to conform our lives to his teaching and example. God help us, and let us also as brothers and sisters in Christ help one another. This is the gateway to the Christian life. And the queries of the coming weeks help define it, help define the various means of grace at our disposal to live it well. Let me finish the point of comparison I began earlier with Babel. When men and nations stiffen their necks against the word of God, when they take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed, we can expect him to take his stand against us. He confounds us. He makes us unintelligible to one another in our rebellion. He shows us to be the fools we are and scatters us and diminishes us and makes us ultimately irrelevant. Here's what the risen and glorified Christ promises those who wait and pray and receive in due season the promises of the gospel. What he says is, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. You shall receive power. And that, beloved, that is what will make you relevant. Power to speak as you never spoke before. Power to understand and be understood. Power to communicate something of the infinite riches of his grace 
in Christ Jesus. He comes with power and great glory to the church. Not to make us happy, nor even to make us healthy, but to make us holy and make us His.